Have you heard about the legendary garage where Apple computers got its start? The truth is it was more of a hangout than anything else. There was a garage, but uh, according to Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, we did no designs there, no breadboarding, no prototyping, no planning of products. We did no manufacturing there. They hung out and talked, and it was the birthplace of the company. But the legend of the garage lives on because from that spot, one of the most influential companies of human history was born. And we love to hear stories of humble beginnings, right? We love it. In 1995, a fellow named Craig Newmark started an email list to friends about the happenings in the San Francisco Bay Area. More than 25 years later, Craig's list still records billions of views every month. I don't know who's going there, but someone is. In 1901, Charles Walgreen opened a single neighborhood drugstore. It measured just 50 feet by 20 feet. And now it seems there's a Walgreens in every neighborhood, right? These are all great business stories, but we're here to occupy our minds with the eternal. The truth is God loves to take small seeds, small beginnings, and accomplish everlasting purposes through them. And he does so not using conventional wisdom or market research, not according to a targeted growth plan or a strategic business model. Those are human ideas. The Lord accomplishes his purposes according to his will and his good pleasure by the Holy Spirit who infuses the organic relationships of Christians with his power and his leading and he presents them with unique opportunities in the time and place into which God has scattered them. The founding of the church at Philippi in Acts 16 is a perfect example of how God empowers his people and uses them where they are and advances the gospel even when his people aren't sure what to do, when they don't know what's coming, when they don't have very many tangible tools to work with, and when they have to venture into uncharted territory. In that situation, the Lord says, you're good, that's great. You're gonna figure it out together. 10 years after the events of our text in Acts 16, Paul would write back to these Philippian Christians. And here's something he would say in Philippians 2. He said, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This morning, we're going to see the start of that work that Paul was talking about. And hopefully, as Christians who have taken up the call of the gospel, we will be stirred up by the reminder that we too are part of that work that Paul was talking about. And that we together, as a local fellowship of Christians, brothers and sisters, we can work out the extraordinary call of the gospel in our own family of faith. So we begin in Acts 16, verse 11, and we read, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city in the district of Macedonia. Hold there for a minute. The year is around 50 AD. Paul is traveling with three friends, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. This is what we call his second major missionary journey, but it gets off to an admittedly strange start. You see, when Paul set out to go on his second missionary journey, he wanted to travel into Asia. He wanted to go east, but we're told, quite surprisingly, that the Holy Spirit had forbidden them from speaking the word there. 
While in Troas, this city, trying to figure out where the Lord wanted them to go, Paul received a vision of a Macedonian man who pleaded with Paul and said to him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia means the island of Greece. This would be the first spread of the gospel into Europe, into the West. Setting sail from Troas, Paul and his three friends must have been absolutely brimming with anticipation and excitement. They had dramatic, clear, specific leading from God. We see from Luke's description here that the wind was at their backs. It was almost as if God was was supernaturally propelling them across the waters. It only took them two days to take a 156-mile trip. This same trip, later in the book of Acts, was going to take five days by ship. They land in Neapolis and they walk 10 miles to Philippi along the Roman road there. Philippi was an interesting and a privileged city. As a colony of the empire, its inhabitants had special rights given by Rome. It included Roman citizenship for the inhabitants and exemption from a bunch of taxes. Many army veterans lived there, and it had a storied military history. Philippi was home to active gold mines and even a school of medicine. Some suggest, based off of small clues in the New Testament, that perhaps Luke himself had studied there in the school of medicine at Philippi. And so all of these things had come together. And they must have had just so much anticipation and and thought, man, something big is going to happen. Paul had experienced a lot of different things in the course of his Christian life. But I'm, just, I'm guessing that the team, as they were preparing and, and following the Lord's leading, that they were just ready for a huge gospel event. Maybe another day of Pentecost situation where thousands were saved suddenly after one sermon. Instead, what happened? The rest of verse 12 says, we stayed in that city several days. It's plain because nothing happened. Nothing at all. There, there was no happening. There was no group waiting for them. There was no open door is the Christian parlance we would use. No great revival. No invitation to the local forum to speak. Uh, no, no scene in the theater where, where Paul spoke in front of thousands of people. When Paul was in Derby back in chapter 14, we're told that he preached the gospel and made many disciples. In a different city, Iconium, we were told a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But in Philippi, nothing. Nothing was happening. At least not yet. They discovered that there was no Jewish synagogue in town. Paul would go to a, a, a town And one of the first places he would stop, if he could, was the Jewish synagogue because they were already believers in the God of Israel and he would preach to them. And then from there, he would branch out uh, to the Gentile community, right? In order for a town to have a synagogue, you needed at least 10 Jewish men. Well, there was no synagogue in Philippi, meaning there weren't even 10 Jewish men who believed in God. And so, man, nothing was happening. For several days, there was no obvious ministry, no open door for them to walk through. It was as if they had gone to the wrong place. We're not told if Paul and his friends were deflated. Uh, We can only speculate. If I put myself in this position, I think I would have been pretty discouraged or at least confused. 
Because God sent them to this city in a sense at the expense of other places. Now, Paul and his three friends weren't the only people preaching the gospel, but we, we look at what they were doing and, and where they were focusing their attention. And as they got there and sort of stood around and no one was listening to them and there was no Macedonian man saying, hey, I'm the one that you're here to speak to, it would have been confusing. What about these other places? Lord, I wanted to go to Asia. No, go to Philippi. Okay, well, I want to go to Bithynia. No, go to Philippi. What about Samothrace? What about Neapolis? No, pass them by. Well, didn't God care about the people in Samothrace or Neapolis? Of course he did, absolutely. And in Samothrace, there was a widely patronized mystery cult. I mean, people needed the gospel there, something fierce. And the Lord cared about those people. Paul would later tell Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, God wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, Lord, then why are we losing days in Philippi where nothing is happening and no one is listening? If you remember, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, there's a time where Peter, the apostle, received a vision, right? He was told, hey, some guys are coming uh, and they're from this fellow named Cornelius's house, and you're going to go up there, and you're going to preach to him, and a big thing is going to happen, right? Peter didn't get to that city and be like, well, where's Cornelius? Yeah, there is no Cornelius, right? So now transfer that to Paul's experience, the Macedonian man. No, he wasn't told his name, but he says, the Macedonian man it comes in a spiritual vision and says, come over and help us. And he, he shows up into this city, and there isn't anybody. There's nobody there. If you're uh, a meme person, it's that John Travolta gif where he's just looking around, right? Have you seen that? No? No? Anybody? Yeah, somebody's seen it. I remember the first time our church sent a team to Columbia uh, seven or eight years ago. We were flying out of LAX, and we were driving down, and the, as we were about to hit the grapevine, our phone started to activate and, and get notifications because it was the day of that shooting at LAX. And it grounded most flights, and that was, that was a, quite an experience. It was bedlam, just absolute chaos, and no one was really sure what was happening, and, and everybody was just trying to get in or out and all this stuff going on. And so our flight, praise the Lord, made it out. But in the chaos, it meant that we missed our connection, which meant that we would lose a day in Houston waiting for the next flight uh, on the following day. And that wasn't part of the plan. It wasn't part of the schedule. It wasn't anything we could do about it, but there we were. And we just had all this time to burn uh, in Houston. And once we were there, we had nothing to do. And I remember we were just a little bit confused. We were a little bit discouraged, a little bit unsure of what we should do. We'd been so keyed up to get to this new place to Columbia and, and figure out what you know, the Lord might have us do there. And then suddenly it was like, yeah, but you're just, you're just sort of tied to Houston for a day. So I can only imagine what Paul and his friends were thinking. Lord, you, you came and visited us in a vision. And then it's like you were blowing the sails of the ship yourself. And we get here and, and there's nothing going on. So in verse 13, we see on the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. So not only were there not 10 Jewish men, there were no Jewish men who believed in the Lord. Now, according to tradition, uh, if the Jews were living in a city with no synagogue, the faithful would meet in the open air by water, by a river, by the sea. And they would meet there to pray and recite scripture and to hear from any traveling teachers that may have been coming through. 
But we see that they said they, we expected to find it, but they just kind of walk out and look around. Well, I mean, if I was part of the non-synagogue, I guess we would meet over here. And sure enough, there were some ladies there. Maybe all of them were Gentiles. Maybe they were just all God-fearers like the lady we're going to be introduced to. But it would have been a strange situation. Verse 14, a God-fearing woman, which just means a Gentile woman who believed in the, the Hebrew God of the Bible, right? A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. Let's step out of the story just for a moment and deal with a doctrinal point uh, here. The phrase, the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. That is a demonstration of what theologians call prevenient grace. There are some Christian traditions which teach that God determines who will believe and who will not believe in eternity past and that there's nothing that you as a human being can or can't do about it because those traditions say that God's grace is irresistible. He pours out his irresistible grace either on you or not on you and there's nothing that can be done. Now, this goes against the clear demonstrations of free will throughout the Bible. And it also stands in contention with scripture, uh, like when Stephen said to the, the Jews he was preaching to early in the book of Acts, he said, you stiff-necked people, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit wasn't resisting them, it was the other way around. Or we think of Jesus, he wept over Jerusalem. He said, I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Right, So Jesus is not saying, yeah, before the foundation of the earth, I did not want you and chose you to resist me. He says, I wanted to gather you and I presented myself to you as Messiah and you were not willing and it broke the Lord's heart. And so rather than irresistible grace, Lydia's story is showing us something called prevenient grace. Prevenient means a a previous act, right? It's not a word that we use very much. So here's a good definition of prevenient grace. It's an operation of the Holy Spirit that frees the sinner's will from the bondage to sin and convicts, calls, illumines, and enables the sinner to respond to the gospel call with repentance and faith. And so the the Bible explains that God frees our wills so that we can choose to accept the gospel or to reject it. Man does not initiate salvation. God is the initiator. He's the one that extends the invitation. We don't go asking for access, right? The Bible's clear that we are dead in trespasses and sins and that there's no one who seeks after God, not even one. Romans 3, right? What the Bible shows us is that God loves every person and wants them to be saved. Paul said so very plainly in uh, his letter to Timothy, and we read that elsewhere. But God will not force his love upon us, or he will not force us to love him because you cannot force love. By lifting Jesus up on the cross, the Bible says that God draws all people to himself. And by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel, God frees our wills to be able to respond either positively or negatively to his call. As A.W. Tozer wrote in The Pursuit of God, we can only seek God because he sought us first. But the choice that God gives us is genuine. You are free to respond to the call to salvation in the same way you respond to when your phone rings. I screen my calls, right? (laughs) Who wants to talk on the phone? I don't, right? So you are free to respond in acceptance or rejection 
to his call. And the Lord puts that very plainly in the New Testament. He says, I'm standing at the door and knocking. And I'm hoping that you'll open the door and let me in so that I can be your savior and be your friend. We can sup together and have this relationship. So Lydia's heart, we see, is is touched by the grace of God. Her will is freed from the bondage of sin and she is able to make a choice uh, toward the gospel. And she exercised her free will to respond in saving faith and belief. Now back into the scene itself. Here's Lydia, the first convert of Europe as far as we know. And there are several wonderful ironies here. Namely that the Macedonian man is actually an Asian woman right? He's not a man, he's a woman, not a Macedonian, it's an Asian, because Thyatira, her city, was back the way Paul had been. It was, he picked up Timothy in Lystra and Derby, we're, we're told, this city over in the east. And then they made their way to Troas. Well, well Thyatira is in between Lystra and Derby and Troas, it's back the way Paul had, had suggested he wanted to go. I want to go east, Lord. And the Lord said, no, you're going to go west. And this is a perfect example of, of why we as Christians and as churches must not use human reasoning when it comes to ministry methods or goals or ideas of what we think the Lord wants us to do. We couldn't have worked out this formula. This is an algorithm that does not compute. If God said, here's my goal, I'd like to save a woman from Thyatira, what do we do? We buy a ticket to Thyatira. Paul was trying to get that way. He was trying to get to Asia. And the Lord said, actually, I need you to go the opposite way. You want to do what I want you to do? You go the opposite way of the way you think you should go. And we're so glad that the Lord led Paul this way, right? Because this moment, this divine appointment, led not only to the great stories of Acts 16, but then to the eternal epistle to the Philippians, which has ministered to countless millions for thousands of years. Not to mention the fact that the gospel would then continue to ripple through the West into Europe, indirectly leading to most of us sitting here this morning. Paul is also really glad that God brought him West instead of East, that he brought him to Philippi. I'll tell you why. This church based off of all we read, would become perhaps the most loved, the most helpful congregation to uh, the Apostle Paul. He speaks with incredible affection and closeness and friendship to them in in his letter to them. And he highlights the special place that they had in his heart and in his ministry. And so the Lord accomplished this incredible thing that was completely counterintuitive to human ways of thinking. Now, we're told here that Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth. This means she would have had wealth and status. There's some evidence that dealing in this color may have been an imperial monopoly and that those involved were members of Caesar's household. Uh, Some archaeological evidence of that. But she would have uh, been a lady of stature and a lady of means. It seems that she was either a widow or single. She was the master of the house. And so, uh, so... She was an interesting lady to become the first convert. Verse 15, after she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. I wonder what Paul spoke on that day by the river. We can't know. It's obvious. It's not recorded for us. 
We do know that one of the focuses, the major focuses of his teaching to Gentiles was the fact that God had broken down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, male and female, slave and free, and talks about how he, the Lord brings them all together into this mysterious new thing, the church. And we also know that his letters often use clothing as an analogy for the Christian life. In Ephesians, of course, he talks about putting on the armor of God. In Colossians, he said to dress yourself with compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness. In Galatians, which scholars think that Paul wrote soon before this happened, maybe a couple of years, but maybe shortly before he came to Philippi, he wrote this. He said, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Uh, We have no idea if he he used these analogies, but it would have been interesting for a woman who dealt in uh, cloth and in purple clothing, right? Whatever it is that he taught doesn't really matter. Lydia, when she received salvation, had her life transformed because she was born again and made into a new creation. She had three immediate desires after receiving the gift of salvation. We see she wanted to share the good news with her family and her household. She wanted to be baptized. And she wanted to apply the grace she had received from God to her life through generosity and service, right? These things immediately happened. Now, the the James, the writer of the book of James in your Bible, if he was describing Lydia and her conversion here, he would say, her faith had works, right? Or we say, faith that works, It wasn't that the works of baptism and evangelism and service and generosity, those didn't buy her salvation. Those didn't earn her salvation. Those didn't merit her a place in the church. Not at all. Those were the natural byproducts of the salvation she had received, right? She was born again. She was made alive. And because she was made alive, that living faith started exercising. And she said, we got to tell this message that you just told me to my household. And I want to be baptized. I want to be clothed in Christ. And now that I'm a Christian, I want to be a part of what the Lord is doing. She probably wouldn't have been able able to verbalize it, but she says, I want to be part of the body of Christ, right? Because the, the New Testament reveals to us that like Christians are the body of Christ operating and exercising the way that your body exercises and operates when you want to accomplish something. And so these are the things that filled her heart. It seems that Paul and company needed a little convincing to stay at her house. Actually, the language indicates that they they needed a lot of convincing. And we don't know why. Uh, it, It would have been a little bit unusual for a group of Jewish men to stay in the home of a Gentile woman. But we're told here that she persuaded us. And the language uh, Luke uses is dramatic, that she forcibly urged us. And so they say, yeah, we'll do it. We'll stay there. But not only did they stay with her, but we find that the church started meeting in her home as well. She immediately wanted to be a partner with Paul and his friends in the work of the gospel. And Paul would acknowledge as much, not just about Lydia as an individual, but all those believers at Philippi, this brand new baby church, he said, you know what? All of you were like that. In the Philippians, he opens his letter to them saying how he thanks God for them and for their, quote, partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And we're seeing the first day. The Lord was changing lives and changing hearts. And suddenly, not just Lydia, but all of them were activated 
to be used by God and say, hey, we're Christians. How do we exercise this faith? How do we live out this, this calling and this power and this presence and this grace that God has given us? They took up Christianity as individuals and as a group together who were partnering with one another in the wonderful work of God in their midst, even though they didn't really know what the work of God was. These are people coming out of paganism. These are people who have no New Testament. These are people who maybe had never heard of Jesus before. We don't understand a world that has no saturation of the New Testament, right? The, the Bible has been the best-selling book for 500 years. Uh, Christianity has saturated the globe in one way or another. Not that everyone is saved, but these people are coming out of super weird, crazed pagan religions. And they're, and, and they're being told, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that there's one true God. And everything you think you know about religion is completely wrong. And instead, let's walk in the way with Jesus Christ. As a group, they immediately started exercising their faith in the simple ways they could. And it's exampled by Lydia. What does she say? She says, why don't we all start meeting at my house instead of walking to the river? The river was a mile and a half away from the city walls of Philippi. I didn't walk a mile and a half to get to church today. I'm guessing most of us haven't. I remember when we were in Peru, there was a pastor there in, uh, in the city of Pucallpa, super, super poor third world area. And we would go from his house to the church building. It was just like an open air church building with like a thatch roof, no walls, dirt everywhere, right? And we would, when we traveled from the house to the church building, I want to say that the trip on motorbike took like 20, 25 minutes. It took a long time. You were worn out from the ride. And then I realized that the pastor, Pastor Carlos, he walked every time. He would walk back and forth from the church to his home. I can't even imagine how far it was. So they were having to walk a mile and a half to get to this meeting spot. So Lydia says, hey, listen, why don't we uh, meet in my house? I can accommodate us. And instead of standing on a muddy bank of the river in the heat, we can sit on chairs in my place. Uh, that's a simple action, right? That would make a really big difference for the whole spiritual family. Because I'm guessing there's a number of people here today that couldn't make the mile and a half walk if we said, hey, you have to walk from your house to get to church, right? And so this very simple act of, hey, why don't we meet here, was a big deal. Especially because soon their little church family would have many more converts, and so it just made sense to have a place they could gather together in the city, a rallying point, a place where they could worship and pray and learn and spend time together, be built up with one another. When something happened, they would know we can go here to Lydia's house. She's got candles and things that you don't have by the riverside. So if it's the middle of the night and you need help, you can come here and we can grow together and we can support one another and, and be with each other. This wouldn't just mean more comfort, though. It would also be a, a brave evangelistic act. You see, in Roman colonies, foreign cults, especially small ones that were not well-established, like Christianity at the time, were often not allowed within the city walls. Now, we don't consider Christianity a cult, but the Roman Empire did. And these little foreign cults, they say, you can't operate within the city unless we give you special permission. And they said, you know what? We are going to meet anyway. And they weren't trying to be antagonistic to their local government, but they said, we are the people of God and we want to meet together and be in unity. And so we're not going to wait for you to give us the green light and the go ahead to meet here. We're just going to meet here. 
We're going to be a people defined by grace and defined by peace and defined by care for one another, but we're going to meet here, even though it's technically against your rules. And if you're familiar with this portion of scripture, you know that the unbelievers in the city would shortly be very unhappy about the presence of Christianity. And they made it known in no uncertain terms when they were beating Paul and Silas within an inch of their lives and throwing them in a dungeon. But this group of Christians was fearless because they were full of God's grace. They were excited to be together and to be a part of what God was doing, even though they didn't really know what God was doing. They just, I just want to be a part of it. They lived from that day on as partners in the gospel, Paul said. And they would figure out what that partnership meant for them day by day as they were led by the Spirit. They had no way of knowing what was going to happen next. But they knew that the Lord was with them in strength and power and presence. They didn't know that very soon Paul and Silas would be taken and beaten and thrown in jail. Undoubtedly, that, that night, the church got together at Lydia's to pray and to talk about what should we done. I'm sure they went, went to Timothy and Luke and said, well, what are Christians supposed to do when this happens? And Timothy and Luke are like, we're new too. We just started traveling with this guy. This is all new for us too. And so, I'm, I, I mean, we try to put ourselves in this situation. Somebody was probably like, should we like stage a jailbreak? It's wrong that they're in jail. They're falsely imprisoned. Should we pool our funds and try to buy them out of prison? What should we do? Luckily, by the next day, they were set free by the Lord, right? But they would have had to get together and say, what are we supposed to do? And, and, and they would have to work together in the, in the presence of the Holy Spirit to work out the Christian response. They didn't know that in a few years, a lot of suffering would not just be coming to the apostles, it was coming their way too. In his letter, Paul would explain that it had been granted to them not only to believe in Christ, he says, but it's been granted to you to suffer for Christ. Wow. He says, remember how you see the gift of salvation? Now you get the gift of suffering. That would be a big deal to work out in their midst. But Paul encouraged them. He said, keep standing firm together, suffer together, be strengthened together. On that first day in Lydia's house, they didn't know that their little church family would soon consist not just of a few ladies who had been by the river, but they was going to consist of merchants and slaves, men and women, veterans and government officials, young and old, rich and poor, all coming together in this glorious spiritual partnership. A bunch of people who are able to enjoy the fellowship of faith, even when the world would divide them and say, no, you don't mix with them. They don't mix with you. Keep them separate. But in the, in the church, they're all together, all all equal in the Lord's eyes, all brothers and sisters, even if one left to be a government official on Monday and another left to be a slave on Monday. They didn't know that they had only a short time with Paul and his companions before they would be gone. Soon, this fledgling church would be on their own, working out their salvation with fear and trembling. No New Testament. Well, they would get one book of the New Testament in 10 years, right? In 10 years, they'd have one book that we have as part of the New Testament. Maybe they had a copy of the Hebrew Bible. All they had was the teaching they had received in a few days from the apostles here. And, but more importantly, they had the Holy Spirit who was with them and who would guide them and who would reveal things to them. And so they would have to work out their salvation in fear and trembling but 10 years later, Paul would write and he would say, yes, keep working out your salvation. Do it together and know that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion. 
the day after Paul and Silas were thrown in the dungeon, they were released. And before being run out of town, they stopped where the church was meeting. Drop down to verse 40. It says, after leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. In that short meeting, part of Paul's encouragement would have been to tell them that they had what they needed because it was true. What they had was sufficient, not only for growth, but for great spiritual effectiveness because they had the Holy Spirit. They would have to navigate the way forward together as a church family being led by the Lord, but they had what they needed. As long as they would abide in Christ, as long as they would follow the leading of the Spirit, as long as they would continue in the grace and in the teaching they had received, they would be able to have all that they needed. As Paul left with his friends, We know that they supplied for his needs, not just once, but in a tender, ongoing way. This is what we read in Philippians 4. Paul says, and you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. And so they were partnering. What can we do? Lord, how can we allow your grace and your presence and your power to flow through us? What small ways? What big ways? What what do you want us to do, Lord? Paul and his friends would need food. They would need some money. They would need fresh bandages for their oozing wounds. They probably needed new clothing. They were first timers in Greece. They could use some local directions. But all of those things were part of the Lord working through this group of people to advance the gospel and to strengthen their spiritual family unity as they partnered together. They weren't just partners in giving stuff, though. They were partners in, Paul would say, grace and care in the defense of the gospel, the confirmation of the gospel. So it wasn't just that, like, hey, Paul's like, okay, your job is to give me stuff. That's not it at all. He says, hey, listen, I didn't, you know, in Philippians, he says, it's not that I wanted you to give me stuff. I wanted it for your benefit. And he says, you partnered with me in the defense of the gospel, in the confirmation of the gospel. Now you are a light in Philippi. Philippi was a city completely in the dark. And now the light was turned on in a couple of these lives. And then from there, it spread out to a couple more lives. And you were going to meet in the city. And when people came and said, I heard that this Christian cult does this, this, and this, you could say, let me tell you about Christianity. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. I'll tell you the truth. You may have heard that we do one, two, and three, but I'm going to tell you we actually do X, Y, and Z. And they presented the truth in grace and in love and in uh, in defense of the gospel. Paul would remind them that God's plan is to advance the gospel through the lives of his people. And Acts shows us that advancing the gospel happens in a huge variety of ways through every sort of Christian. It can happen through the old and the young, the weak, the strong, outside of the home, inside of the home, on a desert highway, inside a big city. Uh, there's, there's no limit to what God can do because he's God. And he's working out his plan through the life of every single Christian, even if we don't have a lot of access, even if we don't have a lot of position or those sorts of things, the Lord is working it out as we are willing to partner with him. This young church would have to work it out But with the Lord's help, they would be able to do wonderful, godly things. Toward that end, Paul encouraged them to stand firm together, to not be frightened by their opponents, to suffer together, for each of them to look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul told them to rejoice together. He repeated that encouragement to them more than once. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. 
And he told them that as they work out their salvation to not put confidence in the flesh. Don't use human methods to try to discover God's leading. Human methods, don't put Paul in Philippi. Thank goodness humans weren't in charge, right? The Christian life is meant to be one of power and many opportunities. And we are meant to work out our salvation together, walking with the Lord. Because God has scattered us into this time and into this place so that we each can be lights shining in our corner of the dark world. We individually and collectively are able to pursue God and bring others to him in unique ways that God has set before us. We will face unique challenges along with our unique opportunities. We don't know what tomorrow holds, just like the Philippians didn't know what tomorrow holds. But we'll be able to face all of these things together as an ever-growing family of faith, partnering with each other, with the Lord as he leads us on. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. It may be the same as yesterday. It may be very different. It may be shocking or difficult or totally uncharted, but we have the Holy Spirit. We know that that's true. We have the living word of God. We know that the Lord intends to accomplish his gracious work in and through our lives. That's why he's given us the Holy Spirit. That's why he's given us his word. That's why he leads us on. That's why he's given us a spiritual family so we can strengthen one another and operate together and exercise our faith together and learn from one another and mourn with each other and rejoice with each other. The Lord has done all of this for us. We are few, but we are strong when God surrounds us and empowers us. So let's advance rejoicing together and seeking God together for what he would have us do. Let's pray.